0: You know, we live in a society uh, in which there's often a very strict division between thinkers and doers, between professors and practitioners. I mean, think about it. Think about the world of difference between those who teach political science and real live politicians. Uh, There's the world of the ivory tower and there is the real world. He who can does, said George Bernard Shaw, and he who cannot teaches. Uh, There is the life of the mind, the world of the intellect, and then there is the real life, uh, the world in which people actually make things work. And in Christian education, you see, there is theology, where we learn about Christology and soteriology and eschatology, and then there is practical theology, where we learn about things like preaching and prayer, and rarely do these two, theology and practical theology, ever seem to make a connection. And unfortunately, this division can exist in the lives of ordinary Christians. We can know all the right things. We can know the Bible backward and forward. We can recite the creed. We can uh, explain the difference between pre- and sub-lapsarianism. We can know all about the gospel, but somehow the gospel doesn't impact the way we live. There's a disconnect between knowing and doing. But I want you to see that in Paul, the author of this letter to the Romans. These two worlds, the worlds of the mind and the real world, the world of theory and the world of practice, these two worlds come together in a magnificent way. Uh, This letter to the Romans, as those of you who have been following along for the last eight months or so, as as you know, this is one of the most sophisticated theological documents ever written. At times it stretches our minds to the limits. Yet it is not the work of a man who distanced himself from the very real affairs of everyday human life. The Apostle Paul was not lost in some ivory tower far away from the rough and tumble life that you and I know. Paul the theologian is also Paul the pastor and Paul the traveling missionary. He combined truth and life. The theoretical with the practical, the intellectual and the active, the thinking and teaching with the doing. And it's the practical side of Paul's life that we want to focus on this morning and next week as Paul has has concluded his exposition of the gospel of grace. He's applied it to an issue within the Roman church on how they should get along with each other despite their differences on disputable matters. And Paul resumes here at the end a very personal letter. The personal letter that he had begun back in the very first chapter. And Paul the Apostle here reveals himself as Paul the pastor, Paul the missionary, and we want to look at what he has to say and and learn some lessons for ourselves along the way. We We want to explore Paul's concerns with a view to what we ought to be concerned with as well. And here we see some of what it means to live out the gospel in real life. Now, there are lots of different topics covered here. There's sort of a shotgun approach. It's I hope the Lord will will grab hold of you in something here as we go along where the Lord says, yes, this is for me. This is something I need to grab hold of. This needs to be worked out in my life. Well, I've broken the passage up into three sections in which Paul first looks back, and then he looks forward, and finally he looks up. So we're going to begin with uh, verses 14 to 21. And Paul writes in verse 14, he says, "...I myself and convince my brothers..." That you yourselves are full of goodness, you are complete in knowledge, and you are competent to instruct one another. Now, this is high praise, isn't it? You're full of goodness, complete in knowledge, competent to instruct one another. Some of the commentators on this passage suggest that Paul is engaging here in some disingenuous flattery in an attempt to ingratiate himself with this church in the hope that, as we'll see in a minute, they will support him in his missionary endeavor. Uh, I'm not so cynical. This is Christian courtesy, not flattery, though there may be some magnification here, just to make the point that Paul respected these people as his fellow believers. They were not ignorant children who needed him to teach them the basics. No, he he respected them as fellow believers in Christ. As he had said back in chapter 1, he expected to be encouraged by them when he came to them. I'm convinced, my brothers, that yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, competent to instruct one another. But what interests me here are the things that Paul the pastor is concerned about. I want you to look at the things that Paul considers worthy of praise in these people. First, he's concerned with the moral quality of their lives, their goodness, how they demonstrate the character of Christ. Because, you see, maturity as Christians entails qualities of character that are brought forth by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. The fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And we need to get it in our heads. This is what true spirituality looks like. This is what a spiritual person looks like. Being spiritual is not about performing miracles or having mystical experiences in prayer or getting wildly emotional in worship. Spirituality is supremely a moral quality. A spiritual person is first of all simply full of goodness. And second, Paul is concerned with their knowledge of the truth, that they be fully grounded in the revelation of God in Christ, lest they be carried away by some new fad and some devious deceit. You see, our faith has content. There is gospel truth. And we need to be instructed in this truth. There are things we need to learn if we're to grow in Christ. We need to grow in the truth of who God is and how He has worked in the world. We need to grow in the truth of who Jesus is and and how the Spirit works in our hearts. We need to grow in the truth of all that the Bible teaches us in who we are as men and women in Christ. And you see, a mature Christian is constantly growing in these convictions. And that's the key reason why we expound the Bible in our worship, why we teach the Bible in our Sunday school and Paul commends these Roman Christians for being complete in knowledge. And then Paul the pastor praises these Roman believers for being competent to instruct one another. Now, the word instruct here, uh, nuthateo, it's not the common word for simply teaching, didasco. This, this word has a moral uh, component to it, an aspect with a sense of correcting or warning or urging someone to do what is right, these These Christians were capable of encouraging one another in godliness. They could build up the faith of others who came in among them. They could encourage them to pray, to read the Scriptures, to share their faith, to minister to others within the church, to reach out in love to those outside the church. We would say that they are skillful in ministry to one another and in their mission to the world. They're competent as Christians. And so Paul the pastor here, he had heard about their character, he'd heard about their convictions, he'd heard about their competencies, and he commends them. And I I just point this out because I think these are things that a pastor ought to be concerned about. These are the things that I want to see in myself, and I want to see in you as our church, as marks of maturity in Christ, your moral goodness the way you just deal with one another and deal with with life and your family at work, your moral goodness, your knowledge of the truth? Do you have a firm grasp of of what the Bible teaches about who we are, who God is, how we're to live? And do you have an ability to nourish your own soul through reading the Bible, through prayer and other things? And do you have the ability to pass on these qualities and truths to others? Do you have these competencies This is what it means to to make disciples. Disciples are followers of Jesus who are joined to Christ by faith and who are learning from Him and growing in Him and are sharing their new life in Christ with others. Paul says, I myself am convinced that you are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, competent to instruct one another. This is what we're about. This is what we're aiming for. Could Paul commend you in this way. Now let's keep these three areas in mind as we think about all that we do as a church and all our various activities. This is what we're aiming for: to grow in Christ-like character, to grow in godly convictions, to grow in these spiritual competencies that enable us to be complete, mature in Christ, so that we might be that community of grace and truth for ministry and mission to the glory of God. Well, another aspect of Paul's pastoral ministry is found in the next verse, verse 15. I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again. Now, Paul doesn't think that he's coming with brand new truths that they've never heard before. In fact, he's hoping to say my gospel, the gospel I preach, is the very same gospel that came to you. He's reminding them of this gospel. Peter puts it the same way. 2 Peter 1.12, he says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. You see what he's saying here? Uh, there's a temptation on the part of any preacher to think that I've got to come up with something new Something entirely fresh. Something you've never heard before every week. No. And there's a temptation in you to think that, oh, I've heard this before. So I think I can take a little nap until he says something new, original, and fresh. No, either way, that's wrong. The truth is we all need to be reminded of the truth over and over again. This truth that our God is great, this truth that our God is good, the truth that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So most of preaching is simply reminding people of what they already know and encouraging them to embrace it more and more by faith and to live it out. And Paul the pastor, he knew this well. He was reminding them. So I, I encourage you to appreciate the importance of being reminded over and over again about the wonderful good news of the gospel and all that it means to us. You will hear that over and over again. That's Paul the pastor. Now in verse 16, Paul moves to an aspect of his ministry that you may not be quite as familiar with. And that is Paul the priest as he talks about his priestly ministry. Look at verse 16. He speaks of the grace given to him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now this verse is loaded with language that reflects the priestly duties associated with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But instead of bringing an animal as an offering to God, Paul thinks here in terms of bringing the offering of God as Gentile converts. That's who he wants to present to God. And it's interesting in speaking this way, Paul thought of his own ministry as a fulfillment of the divine commission of Israel. Back in Isaiah chapter 66, for example, we read of the prophet's vision of Israel's ministry to the world where it says, And they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial clean vessels. You see, as Israel functioned as a kingdom of priests to the world, Now Paul saw Christian believers in that role, offering to the Lord in worship, new worshipers. That's what we offer to God. And here I think we see the connection between the church's two central roles. There's the role of worship and the role of witness, our mission. Worship and witness. You see, as we worship God, in a sense, we are, we are then driven out to proclaim His name in the world. This is what worship ought to do to us. As an illustration of this, during our recent trip to Zambia, uh, David Hazleton and I had the privilege of visiting Victoria Falls. Victoria Falls. Is, uh, the Zambians call it Mozi Oyatunya, the smoke that thunders. Victoria Falls, it's one of the great wonders of the world. You're you're overwhelmed by its its beauty and its power. And and you go there, you you come away just wanting to share that experience with everyone you see. You just got to see this thing. It is so wonderful. You see, I had to have an excuse to show these pictures to you. (laughs) It's, It's that kind of experience. And if you don't have that sense of awe and wonder, if you don't have that desire to share it with other people, there's something wrong with you. That's the truth. And you know, that's the way it is with true worship of God. Think about it. When you taste something of the goodness of God, when you sense something of the awesomeness, of the holiness of God, when you experience something of the grace of God in the cross of Christ, It is so powerful. There's something so attractive, so beautiful about it that your your heart is lifted up in praise and in joy you want to tell other people about it. Come and see. Come and taste the goodness and glory of God. And then those who respond to the invitation. They're brought in. They become new worshipers. And the cycle begins all over again. You see, true worship naturally leads to joyful witness as you want others to join in that worship. Now, John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he says it well. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, he says. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship is therefore the fuel and goal of missions. You see, seen in this way, our evangelism flows out of our worship And those who come to Christ, who become acceptable to Him through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, are then presented to God as an offering of praise. You see, all Christians then who share the gospel with others, you have a priestly ministry in the world. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a priest. Uh, You are. The gospel makes us priests, priests of us all, for we are all witnesses who long to see Jesus Christ worshipped to the glory of God the Father. And so I just ask you, are there people in your life that you long to present to God as an offering of praise? Paul continues in verse 17. He says, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, In leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit. See, in all his work, Paul refuses to take credit for what he's accomplished. For through... He knew that apart from the power of God, he was nothing. It was only through the power of the Spirit of God working through him that he had this powerful ministry. Christ's work through Him, powerfully addressing human hearts through His words. The Holy Spirit was a work through Him, certainly. The, The Spirit authenticated His apostolic ministry with the power of signs and wonders. But most importantly, you see, God is working in power through the message of the Gospel itself. For you see, every conversion is a power encounter a confrontation of the power of sin and death with the life-giving power of the gospel. And only by the work of the Holy Spirit can anyone be rescued and regenerated, raised from spiritual death and given new life with eyes to see the glory of God in the cross of Christ. It's a miracle of the power of the Spirit that we have eyes to see this wonderful, glorious gospel truth And so Paul knew his ministry to be a powerful ministry depended entirely on the power of God. And so it must be true of us. Now that's an encouragement because I was reminded recently of this wonderful statement of Jesus where he says, I will build my church. He's going to do it. The question is, are we going to be involved in that wonderful project? Are we going to have the privilege of being engaged with Him in what He promises to do? What a privilege that is. And that's the way Paul saw it, and so should we. We We're simply to be faithful in what He calls us to do, and He will use His power to accomplish His work. It happens. Let me tell you, it happens all the time. I read a a letter this week from one of our missionaries in the Middle East which told of, of one of their Muslim language helpers, suddenly developing an interest in Jesus and, and, and asking this missionary to, to tell her more about Jesus. And she, she told her all about Jesus and, and then the helper told about how she was going through a very difficult time and she prayed to Jesus to help her and she felt a deep peace as if, in her words, she was born again. That was an expression that the missionary said we'd never shared with her. God's power at work. He works through the gospel in the lives of people if you let him. And finally in this first section, Paul looks back on what he has accomplished already. Verse 19. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. From Palestine to what is now the Balkans, Albania, Yugoslavia, Bosnia... Christ, uh, Paul has fully proclaimed the gospel. Not not that every person has heard of Christ, but that the gospel has taken root in every major center. A church has been planted among every major people group. And, And it seems like Paul was like those early pioneers in the American West. When they could see smoke rising from another person's cabin, they thought it was too crowded and they had to move on. That's how Paul thought about the gospel. He felt crowded by Christians. For God had called him to a pioneering ministry. Verse 20, It has always been my ambition, my eager desire to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. You see, Paul knew that people are lost without Christ. They needed to hear His saving work. They needed to respond to His love. And Paul had the ambition to bring that message of grace where it had not been heard. Now that particular ambition is not given to everyone in quite the same way. Uh, Some have it. Uh, Dave Lanham, one of our missionaries, he he came from our own church uh, back in the early 80s. He felt this ambition in his heart. Dave left his uh, comfortable government job in response to a call to go to live among the Bayanuk tribe in Senegal, West Africa, a a tribe that had no written language. And he went there to proclaim the name of Christ among a people who had never heard it before. Dave told me once that he was convicted by a sermon right here in this church in which the preacher said that That when they stand before God one day, many Christians will wish they had played more risk with their lives and less trivial pursuit. Uh, It's a great line. And and Dave, like, like Paul, took the risk of going into uncharted territory. But I would say both of them found rich blessing, great joy in their work. And both would say they had gained far more than they had given up it's true, God assigns to each His own task, some plant, some water. God causes the growth. To each God will give His reward. But perhaps the Lord would lay upon your heart a desire, an ambition like Paul's. So that as Paul writes in verse 21, quoting from the prophet Isaiah again, those who were not told about Him will see. And those who have not heard will understand. Maybe there's some here that God would call To be a pioneer for Christ. And maybe that pioneering ministry could happen right here with some of the international students who come to us. International students, some who have never opened a Bible before in their life. What a joy, what a privilege it is to sit with them, to share the good news of the gospel with those who have never heard. It's a wonderful thing. And Paul had given, God had given Paul this ambition, this desire, and he'd been busily engaged in fulfilling it. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you, he writes in verse 22. But now that there's no place for me among, uh, to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Now, Paul shifts his attention at this point from the past and what he has done to the future. And what he hopes to do. He he sets forth his travel plans. His itinerary. And it includes three destinations. The first is Spain. This is his ultimate destination. We don't know exactly why Paul chose to go to Spain. uh, But undoubtedly it was a place that the Lord had laid on Paul's heart. He, He felt called to go to this unevangelized Roman province to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth it was Spain was at the western limit of the Mediterranean world and Paul the pioneer longed to see Christ proclaimed there Spain was his ultimate destination but on his way he planned to visit Rome he writes to the Romans in verse 24 I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while And Paul hopes for the Roman church's support. They will send him on his way after he's been with them for a while. And the verb he uses here is a regular technical term for missionary support. This assistance would include material resources, perhaps even traveling companions who would go with him on his mission to Spain. He's asking in effect for the Roman church to be his sending church, providing a base for his mission to the far west. And there's a great need or sending churches. See, no one can get to the ends of the earth where Christ is not known without the financial support of such churches. Ascending church needs to be a church with a God glorifying heart, longing to see the kingdom of God advance. Ascending church must be a church with a sacrificial heart, not hoarding its own resources for their own benefit, but willing to send them out for the, for the greater good of God's cause in the world. An ascending church must be a church with a loving heart, able to encourage and strengthen and refresh those missionaries that it's responsible for. And Paul was looking to the church in Rome to be that kind of church for him. And I think God wants us to be that kind of church, sending out Christian workers of various sorts into the harvest field. And may the Lord continue to use us as ascending church in this way, like this church in Rome. But Paul had one more destination on his itinerary. Verse 25, he says, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in service of the saints there. Now, think about this for a moment. Paul is probably writing from the Greek city of Corinth to the Italian church in Rome about a trip to Spain, but first he wants to make a journey to Jerusalem. Now, think about this. If he takes all these trips by ship, he would log a total of over 3,000 miles. Uh, He had, in the words of Robert Frost, promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Now think about the hazards of travel in the ancient world. You have to be amazed at the almost nonchalant way that Paul announces his intention to make these voyages. It's almost hard to imagine But what is most significant here is that he would add 2,000 miles to his journey just to make a delivery. Look at verse 27. He says, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. Now this must have been quite a contribution Paul was delivering to the, Jerusalem, uh, to the Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul feels that he himself has to hand it over to them personally. Now certainly this collection was meant to meet a very real material need the church in jerusalem was poor perhaps because of the famine conditions in palestine but there was more to it than that and we get a hint of that in verse 31 paul asked for prayer that his service in jerusalem that is this monetary gift that he is going to deliver that this service in jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there now you usually don't have to pray that someone will accept your money But you see, this contribution was more than just an exercise in benevolence. It had a definite theological meaning. You see, the Gentile churches that gave this money, Paul says in verse 27, were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. And so this gift was a symbol of the Gentiles' spiritual indebtedness to the Jews. And the Jews' acceptance of this gift would signify their acceptance of the Gentiles. Their acceptance as fellow recipients of the grace of God and their acceptance as fellow members of the people of God. And so this collection became for Paul a tangible expression of the gospel that he preached. A gospel which united Jews and Gentiles as one in Christ. And so Paul was willing to risk his life. He was willing to go 2,000 miles out of his way just to see that this unity was affirmed by the church in Jerusalem. That's how important it was to him. It was the unity of the church that important to us. Jesus said that the credibility of the gospel depended on it. Jesus prayed to the Father that His own followers may be one as He and the Father were one so that the world may know that the Father had sent Him. Let me tell you, I've since, in the last couple of years here in the Washington, D.C. area A new and fresh desire among pastors to come together in prayer for the purpose of promoting evangelism and the spread of the Gospel in our region. I've been involved with a church network called Reach DC. In fact, we held some evangelistic training here just yesterday. I've been involved in another network called One Heart DC that's planning a prayer rally on the mall on Columbus Day, Monday, October 12th as a visible demonstration of Christian unity in the gospel. And you'll be hearing more about that soon. Unity in the body of Christ as a witness to the world. This was dear to the heart of Paul. And it should be to us as well. So Paul's travel itinerary, Spain, Rome, Jerusalem, three destinations, each with a different meaning for Paul, signifying the pioneering church, the sending church, and the unified church. All were expressions of the gospel at work. Looking back. Looking forward. And now Paul closes with words to the Roman Christians. With a a call to, to look up. Verse 30. He says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Now, notice, incidentally, the the Trinitarian nature of Paul's Christian experience. The Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Spirit, praying to God the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't let people say the Trinity is a later invention. No, it's right here. It's right here in Paul's experience. But his concern here is is that they would join with him in his struggle, his, his spiritual battle, by praying for him. I don't know of of one missionary who doesn't share this need, this need for others to join with him or her in their struggle through prayer. In fact, the struggle in this context takes place in the prayer itself. Uh, In in Colossians, Paul gives us the example of Epaphras. Colossians 4, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. You know, prayer seems like such a placid kind of activity. It's done in one's leisure, it's in the peace and quiet of an empty room. But for Paul and for those who take prayer seriously, it's anything but that. Prayer is a form of warfare. You're, you're engaged in fighting the, the spiritual forces of evil at work in the world when you pray. It's been said that prayer is where we actually strike the winning blow. Fruitful evangelism is simply gathering the plunder. And there's nothing so important for a missionary out on some lonely foreign field as to know that the saints back home are praying. Praying not casually, half-heartedly, but with earnestness, urgency, persistence, and in their prayer, sharing in the struggle, engaged in the battle, wrestling with the enemy. This is a spiritual reality that we, in our Western world, are often very blind to. And we'll see more about this as we look at the Gospel of Mark as we move forward this fall, the spiritual battle, the warfare that that we're engaged in, and Paul calls us to pray here. And Paul specifically asks for prayer in three areas. He says first in verse 31, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. You see, traveling on the high seas was not his only concern. When he got to Jerusalem, he knew that he would not be welcomed by some of the Jews there. They had dogged him wherever he went. They saw him as a threat to their way of life, a traitor to the law of their God, as an enemy to their people. Paul knew that it could be dangerous. And second, he says, pray that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. We've already talked about what that meant to Paul. And only God in His grace could overcome the sinful divisions that pull us apart even in the church. And third, he prays so that God, by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Three requests for protection from his opponents, for acceptance of his gift, and for success in coming to Rome. And I ask, were these prayers answered? They were answered as our prayers are often answered. According to the gracious will of God. Was Paul protected from his opponents? Well, no. I mean, Paul ended up in prison as a result of their accusations. But yes, he was protected. Three times he was rescued from lynching, once from flogging, once from a plot to kill him. His life was spared. Was his collection for the saints accepted? Well, surprisingly, we don't really know, but... Luke, who obviously knew about it, says nothing specific about it in his account in Acts, though we assume that it was. There was peace. And was Paul successful in coming to visit the church in Rome? Again, the answer to that prayer is yes, but. Paul did reach Rome, but not as he had planned. Paul arrived three years later as a Roman prisoner and after an almost fatal shipwreck. And as it turned out, that was God's will for Paul. And all along, that's what he wanted. He wanted God's will. He had prayed, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Is that how you pray? Are you looking for God's will when you pray? God's will, let me warn you, may not be what you expect, but Paul had confidence that God's will was better than anything he could have ever planned. We need that confidence. We need that faith. There's one other question we have to ask. Did, Did Paul ever make it to Spain? Now, there's nothing in the New Testament about such a visit. We can't be sure. A One church leader named Clement, writing from Rome in about A.D. 95, refers to Paul as having reached the limits of the West. Was that Spain? Or was he speaking of Paul reaching the goal of the West, that, that is Rome? We're not really sure. But we can be sure that even if Paul didn't reach Spain, the gospel did For we do know that there was a Christian church existing there in the second century. The gospel kept on spreading. It kept on spreading because there were men and women like Paul. Men and women gripped by the message of the gospel. Men and women called by God to bring that message where Christ had not been known. And so, in the providence of God through the course of history, that gospel has come to us, to you and me, And the question I ask you this morning is, is this message of God's grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, is it something more than mere theory, mere theology to you? For there is a world of difference between someone who merely listens to sermons and a real, live Christian. They've got to come together. Our head has to match our heart, which then flows out into our hands the way we live. There's got to be a a union of those. We've got to live out the Gospel. It's something that has to move from head to heart, from intellect to will, from an idea to a personal relationship and a way of life. It's my pastoral duty to remind you of that. For it must. It's my priestly duty to present you as an offering Acceptable to God. And as a missionary, I long to see our great God worshipped in every place, by every person, to the glory of His name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word to us, which speaks to us in so many different ways. We thank You that that it has been given to us by Your Spirit through the hands of Your Apostle Paul so that we might be instructed, so that we might be encouraged, so that we might be competent as believers to live as You call us to live in the light of Your goodness and grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may Your Word do its good work. This I pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.